0: Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and I'm Mike Powell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member, and your host.
1: Beringer-Ingelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer-Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.
0: Hi, before we start this episode of the AAEP Practice Life Podcast, I just want to give warning that this episode will cover sensitive topics, including suicide, abuse, violence, and mental illness. You should be advised to refrain from listening to this if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Thank you. Hi and welcome to an- another episode of the AEP Practice Life Podcast. I'm Mike Powell. As usual, the podcast is brought to us by our friends at Beringer Engelheim. Today we have a bit of a, I'm going to say it right up front, it's a delicate subject and it's a tough subject, but it's a subject affecting many of us, not only in the equine veterinary profession, but in the veterinary profession. And our two guests, Before I introduce them, I just want to say personally, I want to thank them just because they have been through burnout and they've come through the other end. And it's not an easy subject to talk about. And so for them to come forward is a lot of bravery, a lot of courage, but I think their stories are going to help a lot of us uh, as equine veterinarians. So I'm going to start closest to me, uh, literally just down the road, a couple turns, but drive for five hours is... Dr. Kara Rosenbaum. Kara, welcome.
2: Hi, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And then just a little bit further away, <laughs> I had the pleasure of meeting this gentleman in 2016, and his story has resonated with me, and I always like to check in on what he's doing Is Dr. Oliver Layu from Australia. Oliver, welcome.
3: Hi, thanks, Mike. Thanks very much for inviting me to speak.
0: So before we jump into it, just uh, we'll start with you, Oliver. Just tell us a little bit about you and your practice, where you are in Australia. It's a huge country. So, talk to us about where you're from.
3: Yeah, so I'm uh, in Grafton in northern New South Wales, which is on the east coast of Australia. It's about halfway from top to bottom. Uh, it's a small rural regional town. And we've been here, I've been in my own practice for about 20 years. Uh, I graduated about 30 years ago. And uh, yeah, we just have a elective uh, equine-only practice, but we also do sort of additional things. We run workshops, training workshops for vets in equine dentistry and also some equine reproduction and some conferences and I do a bit of lecturing. And we also import and um, distribute dental instruments and also uh, we developed a, a mobile stocks, water-safe stocks trailer for vets to use, and we've yeah made about 85 of those and sort of. That's around the country in New Zealand are using those and enjoying them.
0: Just a few things you do. Just a few things.
3: Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's never boring.
0: <laughs> and Kara, tell us about yourself.
2: Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. I am in Dutchess County, New York. So it's about two hours north of the city, vacation land for some people. I've been in practice here for just about a year and a half, but I'm local to this area. I grew up just about an hour south of here. I graduated from Cornell in 2017, did a sports medicine focused internship, and then worked at a practice in Illinois and Florida for two and a half years before I moved back to the East Coast with my husband, who's also in, he's a mixed large animal. I'm in a pretty big group practice. There's about 16 of us, including our five intern doctors with a referral hospital, but I'm one of the ambulatory associates. So I do general practice, I focus in sports medicine, and then I still do emergency call as well.
0: Excellent. So let's talk about burnout. And before we get into this, Kara, you share some really good resources. Let's make sure we understand the terminology because as we're discussing, we want to make sure we're talking that everybody understands where we're coming from. So maybe you could talk a little bit about compassion fatigue versus burnout versus empathy fatigue which is a new one for me.
2: Yeah, so the AVMA actually put together a really nice resource. Obviously, there's a bunch of uh, research and literature behind these (laughs) definitions in the psychology industry. But I thought the AVMA has a nice summary of them on their well-being uh, section of their website. So I think the biggest thing that we talk about where people get a little confused and hung up is defining what's going on with them. And compassion fatigue and burnouts are sometimes used interchangeably, but they're not interchangeable. One thing that I has always told, which I think is a good litmus test is burnout. When you leave work at the end of the day, or you remove yourself from that stressor of the job, and whatever else we'll talk about the other factors of burnout that are associated with the job, you feel better, or you can find a way to recoup. Compassion fatigue transcends that a bit more. So compassion fatigue can manifest a little bit more in your life. So that's, more of a exhaustion of biologic, physiologic, emotional dysfunction. And a lot of that comes from who we are. A lot of us that get into the industry are strong empaths. And so the pressures that we put on ourselves that then contribute to that. Again, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're bearing the suffering of others, you know, duration of the experience, potential for reoccurrence, our exposure to death and dying contributes to that versus burnout, which is truly more prolonged response to chronic interpersonal stressors on the job, but can also manifest as emotional exhaustion, inefficiency, ineffectiveness. So I think they're really closely tied, but we have to be careful to not use them interchangeably because they are actually different. And then obviously there's the other end of the spectrum that has, you know, compassion, satisfaction, where you're feeling like you're getting what you need based off of your what you're inputting. Sorry, what was the third one?
0: Empathy. Fatigue, and which is what they're talking about. Compassion fatigue is probably a misnomer for what many of us go through in the veterinary profession.
2: Exactly. Compassion fatigue is a little bit of a larger term that encompasses it. But again, when we look at what is leading to our compassion fatigue, it is often truly stemming from an, an empathy fatigue. So being overly empathic and not being able to separate out your empathy And how that's translating, you know, through your job and then the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, I know when I started doing some research on burnout, it was just interesting because so many of us, and this is such a familiar refrain, and many of us think this way. And I still catch myself is that we think, oh, if people were just tougher, they wouldn't burn out. If they were more resilient, if they just, you know, had a back when my day is. And, And really what I have learned is that burnout is more job related where you work. Whereas compassion fatigue is more where the, the work you do. And so a lot of the burnout that we see in this profession is sadly related to the workplace. And I know Dr. Christina Maslach from University of Berkeley has done a lot of the pioneering research. And that's sort of when I realized that it's like, yeah, it's not the person, it's the environment we have. This thing so I guess that's a great segue. And we'll start with you, Oliver, is. Can we talk a bit about your burnout and what caused your burnout?
3: It's probably the usual story of uh, it was multifactorial. You know, you think you're going along fine, and you And I, I've always, uh, I actually burnt out and went into a major depression seventeen years ago, which which culminated in a suicide attempt and five days in ICU on life support. And I was very lucky, series of miracles that that sort of spared me and allowed me to get back with no long term effects of you know that. Uh, you know, drenching in barbiturates sort of thing. So I, I became a student of, you know, watching out for it and actually became uh, regarded as a bit of an expert in the topic. So I, I thought, you know, I've learned everything I needed to avoid the burnout situation. And I thought I was pretty well immune to it, that I'd never go back there. Um, you know, I thought it was all all hunky-dory fine. I knew how to pull back. I knew how to set boundaries. I knew how to say no with a smile that sort of thing. But I knew also, like most vets, fairly fairly driven, fairly obsessional about you know getting the job done and that sort of thing. So I, I sort of chose tasks that I thought would add value and help a lot of horses, help a lot of people, uh, but also especially like helping other vets. And so that took me down that path. Last October, I did a, a business course as a result of that, we uh, we set a target to increase our sales by 33% over the next 12 months, and we instituted some sort of strategies to do that. and And we were going swimmingly well. Sort of, we were four months into it, we we're going well, and uh, we had another four workshops coming up that we we're going to host about 100 vets for four to six days over those. Plus, we were doing our elective work where uh, as a solo practitioner and two and a half nurses, you know, we'd crank through uh, some pretty good figures in, you know, sort of a almost part-time role, but we're getting full-time results. Uh, So we were doing it fairly efficiently. We also had last year our busiest stud season that we'd ever had. And I think that was thanks to COVID and uh, a series of things, but everyone decided to breed their mare. So we're really cranking it. Going well. Uh, but then we, uh, it, after our first of our four workshops, we had a, a one in 500 year flood event in our region. And uh, it became a devastating thing that uh, we just saw not only, you know, a lot of these were clients that we knew, we weren't affected directly here, but uh, we just basically shut down our business for two months and focused on helping those affected horses cattle owners that sort of thing and we did a fair bit of stuff and our uh, practice here is usually just a uh, you know elective work so we might have one patient two patients maybe a few more in um, breeding season with that we ended up having about 20 horses here and and so that sort of just really exposed all the shortcomings in our Systems, we weren't set up to be a sort of a hospital per se, but we had to, we did our best to morph. And, you know, every morning my primary question was to get up and sort of say, How can I help as many horses and people as I can today? And that was my question for two months. And, and I thought, All the rest can wait. These people have just been to hell and back. And, you know, how can we do this? But I guess I'm, I'm more an introvert person that pushes myself to be extrovert, but hosting a lot of people here. Really was pretty stressful. We had, I think, sixteen or twenty vets over the two months to come and help us. So I got to see sixteen to twenty different ways how to bandage a leg, and <laughs> so it was, you know it was kind of funny watching just the um the different techniques and all that. But it was it was a wonderful experience. But when we got to the end of it, I'm sure I was affected by uh, what I've read about, since there's a thing called vicarious trauma where you actually really I guess your subconscious takes on the trauma that you see others experience and if I was just living on cortisol and adrenaline and just kept going, kept pushing and as we morphed back into our normal life suddenly we were two months behind on all our planning for our events and we also, you know, I went and did about five other sort of events that we were asked to help out with and so it just became a um, chase your tail, chase your tail, chase your tail. But, you know, I was positive. I was, you know, we we're going to get it done. We had a great team. They we were all committed, all going hard. But then I, I started to know, I started to catch myself, and this is, I think, the first of it, that I um, started to catch myself saying things that were, you know, fairly crass and mean and hurtful. And, and I think to myself later, why did you say that? You know, what, what's going on? And I just thought, oh, that's fine. Just tired. And a couple of times we tried to get away for we've got away for a couple of days, and you know, switched off that sort of thing. But when I went away, I was still working. Unfortunately, I was still writing lectures. We went and stayed at a really nice place up at Byron Bay. But you know, eighty percent of the time, I was writing lectures for an upcoming conference, and because I've got so far behind on all that, but still had to get it done. So it was just sort of push, push, push. You know, I was blessed with an amazing partner who was just uh, forgiving and patient and um, you know supportive all the way so it wasn't like I you know got dumped in the drink or anything but it just kept creeping up creeping up and I guess um, it, it you know we at the end of each of the events that we were running I found myself really at the end of my tether because those events you know when you're hosting the you want everything to go spot on and because we hadn't had a chance to prepare well for them but we were still going to get the job done um, I found myself running triple time you know getting this getting that and I knew the team was also tired so I didn't want to push them you know there's I just you know let them do their best and, and that was it but I, I think I just took it on too much personal trying to help the flood people and try to get the events done and that sort of thing and you know, I guess, again, like most vets, you, you think you're super Superman and you think you can just keep going and pushing and helping and all that and you're fine until you're not. And and that plummeted me back. I started just before I really crashed into a major depression, I started really feeling. I read a book called Burnout, which is written by Professor Gordon Parker, who he, um, he studied it for, I think, 30 or 40 years. He started the Black Dog Institute in Australia, and uh, he, he said the three classic features for burnout, they can have a lot of crossovers with a lot of other mental illnesses, anxiety, depression, uh, personality disorders, that sort of thing. But he said the three things that he th- thought really stood out was that you start uh, lacking compassion and, and that, that's exactly what I was doing. I was starting to say things that just weren't me and, you know, you get cynical, sceptical, and not seeing the joy in things as well as the obvious you know exhaustion just tired all the time but also even some cognitive impairment where you think geez I'm just not as sharp as I used to be I couldn't remember that phone number that name you know that drug dose that sort of thing And so and you try harder and do harder and, but it, it just wasn't sort of coming so and, and I sort of just started to feel that, oh, this is very similar to what I went through in 2005. And it was really at the end of the last workshop that we ran in mid-July that I sort of lost my marbles a bit and really cracked the poos at, at um, something that I heard about that I wasn't happy with in our industry and with an event that was coming up. And I went public and really on, on Facebook, as you, as you should never do, but um Really ripped into them, sort of thing. And, but from that, I just sort of thought again, you know, what are you doing? And I just sort of plummeted from there and went into, um, you know, feeling just all the classic depression signs from there, which were imposter syndrome. You screwed everything up, you have ruined everything, and, and stuff that was crazy because it hadn't changed much. You know, we were still okay, but it was just my brain had um, really gone into this mode of being absolutely certain that i'd messed everything up and and then you know just spiral into the into the classic depressive thoughts and suicidal ideation came along and getting to a point where i was thinking well i tried it 17 years ago it didn't work so i'll do a better job this time and i'll go and tackle a truck on the road and stuff like that so it was you know and again thinking this is a positive thing this is helping you know my partner my boys will get my small inheritance and that sort of thing, you know, just thinking that, you know, you're not needed, you're holding people back, you're poisoning the, the arena, the sort of environment around you with negative thoughts and that sort of thing. Yeah, so it was just a massive beat up and I was also really cranky at myself that I'd let myself get there having known and learned so much about it and I just sort of thought, why did you go down that path? And the other thing I think that was a fairly profound is that one of the um, sort of world experts in veterinary mental health, the late Dr. David Bartram. He, I spoke with him in 2015 uh, on veterinary suicide, and he was a world-renowned expert on it. And he took his life in May this year. And I, I look back, and I think maybe that, you know, affected me more than what, what more than what I realised. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that I think I, I didn't stop. I just pushed on because of that sort of obsessive nature that so many vets have to just keep going and. You know, we get where we get in life through hard work and drive and determination, but sometimes you've got to learn to pull back and just stop and say no and refresh. All the classic cliches, you know. But
0: sounds like absolutely harrowing journey.
3: It's been interesting. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow, thanks for sharing that. You shared a lot. Thanks, and I want to. We'll have some more questions I want to get into, uh, for sure. But Kara, can you share your story with us?
2: Yeah. So. I'm a little bit younger in my career still, so I'm only in my sixth year out and I'm one of the, you know, kind of young professionals that experienced burnout. I think that it is manifesting quite interestingly and differently in the younger generation here. And for me, when I was able to wrap my head around the fact that it is workplace related and not compassion fatigue, because I had not known that difference, it made a big difference for me. So I think the other thing, and we may talk about this a little bit more later, but It was hard for me to recognize that I was burned out. I'm someone who's struggled with major depressive disorder since I was in my teens. So a lot of the things that I think I felt, I just assumed were me having bad times and things ebb and flow. And it's a hard career, but you know, I just I I kind of was thinking on this, you know, coming into this recording and conversation with you guys. Um, and I kind of broke it down in the different ways uh, that we see burnout manifest. So the different things that cause burnout. So I'm just gonna go through that because I think that's the easiest way for me to
0: absolutely, yeah
2: all right, so workload I realized and some of this was not realized until afterwards, or I realized it as it was happening was like this doesn't seem right, but continued on because it was the situation I was in, and I thought the pros outweighed the cons and that I was still happy overall or that this may be the way it is other places and you know sensitive uh things, so I was being asked to do many things that were out of my purview. We did not have intern doctors. We did not have overnight technicians all the time. We did if there were horses in the clinic, but they were not LVTs or CVTs or RVTs. You know, they were assistants. So I like distinctly remember we had a horse in the clinic, you know, that was getting refluxed every two hours. So it was myself and the other associate that were going in every two hours for three weeks and then still being expected to run our full days and our full regular ER work you know, nonstop. And we all sit here and shake our heads now and are like, oh my gosh, red flags. But at the time I was like, I'm just being a team member. Like it is my personality to help others first, put everyone else first. and that's that, you know, where it starts to blur the line with compassion fatigue and, you know, empath fatigue, et cetera. And the, you know, kind of what Oliver's talking about with the flood victims, you know, you're just like, I, I gotta do this. Like this has to happen. Someone has to do it. Additionally, there were things such as, you know, taking in cases, you know, into our hospital when I wasn't actually on call because if a referring needed to send something in, someone had to receive it. And the referring was the one who was on call for that weekend because we had a shared consortium, which seemed great because you were on call less, but at the end of the day, if someone else from not the practice is on call and a case needs to come into the hospital, someone's gotta take it in. And I ended up raising my hand a lot for that and then being trustworthy to show up for that um, and realized, that that leads into kind of the next section, which was lack of control, which is, it seemed like I had control of my life, but I really didn't. My life was being dictated by my work schedule. I was in a long distance relationship with my now husband, and um, we were lucky enough to make it work. But you know, the weekends had to be planned way in advance, and they were often short. Um, There was a lot of him coming to visit me versus me going to visit him. And also still having my phone with me when I was on call. With that, both of those things, I had one phone for work. Now I have two. So I have a work phone and a personal phone. I can talk on this later when we talk about tips, but I think that's a huge factor for me. I can't have my phone with me when I'm away. If it's my work phone and have clients texting me and I recognize that it's a personal thing, but then I can't ignore that. Again, lack of control of kind of what I'm actually doing day to day. You know, reward and fairness for me kind of go went similar. So I, I was kind of financially undercompensated for the level of work I was doing. And again, talking about, you know, the things that I was picking up, which is definitely something I didn't realize till after I had left. And then the fairness thing was very much also kind of taking advantage of my team player attitude and a lot of the other co-workers, team player attitude. So high tech turnover. So, okay, you train the new tech because you're the newer doctor. So you're job is less important, which isn't how it should be viewed, but that was kind of the culture. And then it was like, oh, that, that tech is like really good or that assistant, you know, she's getting really good. Like I need more help. So then that assistant would go to the practice owner and then I would get another new one. And so then my days were continuously inefficient because my turnover was very high and it was very much, a you can have the equipment or the tech, technical staff or the help that you need if no one above you needs it more, which is, as we all know, not a successful model. And with that, that was kind of the community mentality that was there, which was quite difficult. There were a lot of also, uh, I learned this actually at an AVMA wellbeing conference. I learned about microaggressions. So I was living in the Midwest and I'm from the East coast. As a person I'm extroverted and I'm louder and more, ebullient than others but in gregarious but in the midwest there were a lot of microaggressions in the workplace about oh you're so loud you're from the east coast like oh that east coaster we don't do that east coast stuff here and it's like (laughs) medicine's medicine no matter where we go and we should all recognize the values in having different personalities in a practice because as we know clients all get along with different personalities and you know i look at my practice now with 16 doctors and we're all so different. And you have clients that just gravitate towards each other. And it allows us to have a much bigger client base because everyone can kind of find their niche. Whereas I felt before it was definitely like, you need to fit into this niche because this is what they're trained for. And this is who they are. And I didn't realize how much that was affecting me day to day. And just like slowly eating away at me as a person, in addition to me at work, because it was putting me in a box. It was trying to funnel my personality and my treatments and how I handled situations into a specific pattern. And that was not productive for anyone. And that's kind of leads into this whole idea of values mismatch, which is another factor that can contribute to burnout. And, you know, I think I'm a very community oriented, team oriented person, both the client base of where I was, which I think we can't forget about when we're talking about things in the workplace that lead to burnout is also the clientele because it's not just the people you're working with, but the clientele who you're working with as well. So that's part of the environment. was not a great match for me. There was a lot of kind of issues for me with people who had really high expectations, but really low desire to be flexible in their treatment modalities or plans. In addition to people within the practice as, you know, we do this, 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 and this is why kind of thing. Not only with how we treat certain things, where I had some leeway for sure. And, you know, thus I was there for two and a half years, you know, I was clearly happy, but you know, things like, oh, I would really like to put this animal on this medication. It's, we don't stock that, you know, oh, well, could we stock it? Shelf life is too short and you're not going to be like, well, but I have a patient that's going to be on it for years. It's like, well, then they can order it online and we can compound it for them. And then I'm going through these, you know, hoops and Jumping through fire with my clients to try and help them figure out how to make a Wedgwood account and things like that. And they're getting frustrated. It's, you know, we're in client service. And I think for me, I realized that client service is a huge part of what makes me happy and what makes me tick. And I can provide client service and be a good veterinarian without client service, isn't killing myself and bending over backwards to inject a set of hawks on Sunday night so the horse can be back in the ring by Friday and client service is the entire picture. If you start to neglect those little, you know, communication things, communication is really huge for me. Spending the extra five minutes with someone to ask them about, do you have questions about their feed? Not just, is he lame left hind or right hind? It makes a big difference And the culture that I was in and the culture that had been cultivated around those kinds of communications just wasn't as strong for me as, what I think I needed to be able to provide to make me feel happy. So I started doing again, classic burnout things. So like I said, I thought that I was just experiencing my own depression waves, which I'm sure some of that was in there, but things that I didn't realize were as strong as they were again, having conversations with outside people who saw things as red flags. I then started defending things that I, you know, I think deep down I knew probably weren't great, but you know, like, especially with my partner defending things about the place or the clients or whatever, then I'm kind of ending up in this self-loathing, vicious cycle there because now I'm kind of trapping myself more into this box. I'm defending this thing that's putting me in this bad situation that I'm having to vent about. And now I'm staying in this bad situation and having to shove myself tighter and tighter into it so that I can create this false happiness. I was, you know, again, classic things of, uh, oh, I didn't sleep (laughs) I don't think I slept a full night for years, (laughs) you know, up multiple times during the night. Didn't realize that that was so negative. (laughs) And I just thought that was normal stress. You know, being an equine vet, you should be able to sleep through the night safely and soundly and comfortably. Missing out on family events that because of, again, that lack of control and realizing that when I did show up, it was very hard for me to be present. Unless I could, again, I could remove myself from the situation, but it was, I think a lot of us veterinarians, people are like, oh, it's so cool you're a vet and they want to talk about it. And so when I was going home, I wasn't able to remove myself still from that environment. And so I was carrying that with me. Whereas now I work in a very productive and happy environment and I'm quite pleased where I can say, oh yeah, everything's great. And I don't have this weight on me. And I mean, I can feel the anxiety in me right now, just even talking about it, where I was able to, now I can actually separate myself out when I'm not at work. Whereas before, you know, clients constantly communicating, um, et cetera, that was hard to do. I had, I think, one really, really low weekend, uh, which is a good example of how burnout can affect your personal life as well, which was, I had friends visiting when I was working down in Florida over circuit. And I had been in this mode of everything has to be catered to and bent over backwards for. And when I was in Florida, I was alone. I was my own technician, my lab tech, my pharmacy manager, my client service relations, scheduling officer. I was the veterinarian. I did everything from soup to nuts, solo practitioner style, essentially. It was exhausting. And I don't think I realized what kind of person that had shifted me into until I had these friends come down. And it was really hard for me to balance getting their needs met. So I wanted to go watch the one show and I needed to get the one from this place to the other place. And I was trying to make dinner plans so that everyone would be happy and everyone could go here. And I mean, I just crashed and burned and I remember sitting on the kitchen floor hysterically crying. Similar to you, Oliver, saying to my significant other who was there with me, saying like, why do I bother? I'm just making everyone's time harder. I'm not making anything better. I'm not contributing anything. You know, this would have been fine if I wasn't involved. Everyone would have had an easier weekend. And you start idealizing not just necessarily suicide, but just removing yourself, just the general principle of removing yourself from a situation in a way that people would function better without you. And I think that was, and i I, that was not my point. I realized I needed to leave that job, sadly. But I think that's that moment where you're like, okay, like this is... Looking back on it, like, wow, why did I feel that way? And it's all these external factors of not being validated, being asked to do things you just can't handle enough things, having a culture at the end of the day that when you're going above and beyond and you're becoming this martyr because you feel like you need to, you're not getting verbal praise for it, you're not getting financial praise for it. Your clients necessarily just kind of think that's the way it is because that's how they burn through other practitioners and that's been the way that it goes. And you just end in this point where you're like, I, I can't keep functioning like this.
0: Again, another harrowing story. and Both of you, I'm, I'm glad we're in the position that we're actually talking. And, and uh, again, I'm just going to repeat myself. Thank you for sharing because I've listened to both of your stories and so much resonates with me, but other people that I know in the profession. So I'm sure people listening to this will be like, wow. Yes, I, I get that. I, that's me, Oliver. How did you address it? I mean, it, it's recent, and so I guess you're still addressing it. But how have you addressed your, your burnout?
3: As I said before, it's been an interesting journey, and and one that I've learned a hell of a lot from. You know, it's the old thing of you don't know what you don't know. So I was lucky enough. I was very, very lucky. Um, you know, right through. I think I've been a lucky person all my life. But um, I guess. When I, when, when I got deep enough into, you know, burnout and then slash major depression, suicidal ideation, I did know and I told many people, many audiences, a lot of vets have rung me in crisis over the years and I've told them, you know, just sit tight if you're in that suicidal ideation, you know, it will pass and then you will be able to deal with the underlying issues. So that was one thing that I knew about. And I, I think one thing with depression is that the, the last thing you want to do is go and talk to anyone. <laughs> and that's, um, it's such a paradox between the whole, you know, publicly advertised, you know, are you okay day we have here in Australia and that sort of thing. And when you're in that state, you do not want to talk to anyone. You just feel like you are toxic. You are, you know, feel like a leper. You just want to hide in a cave. But I was lucky enough to, think, well, I do need to sit tight, even though there was a real burning desire for me to, you know, just um, make things better in a heartbeat, which was, you know, suicide. But I also had an amazing partner who, and the irony is that she'd learned a lot about this through coming to events where I was speaking about suicide. <laughs> you know, she said she had no idea about it before meeting me. And then, and she's a human nurse, and, um, but she actually recognised The seriousness of it and so pulled some levers that included the the tip of getting out of the pot getting out of the boiling pot that's number one and but she contacted the psychiatrist who helped me back in 2005 and and spoke to him and got an emergency appointment and that sort of thing yeah i got talking and then she packed me up uh told me we're going away for a couple of days 'Cause I was immediately thinking I can't afford but business needs me, you know, I need to fix the damage that I've done, you know, all this sort of thing. And she said, We're going for two days and as it turned out it was three weeks that she was taking me away for. So I was lucky enough to have that, lucky enough to have a team that could keep the business going and, and that's um through I guess through you know, upstream, we have been working on things like systems and that, but we were nowhere near. And I remember coming to your conference in 2016, the Oculus conference, Mike, and all of that stuff is what I've been trying to do for 20 years in this business. But it, you just can't get there quick enough, you know, to set the systems and all, all of that job descriptions and reviews and all that. But luckily, it was to a point enough that the team was able to go on without me. And through the busyness of um, you know, the flood stuff, I, I did a knee-jerk reaction of thinking, you know we're so far behind in our regular booked work. I'm going to need to put new vets on, which I hadn't planned to do until 2024. But I brought that forward and put two new vets on. And that actually contributed to the stress because we were nowhere near ready for that. And, and I knew that. And I explained that to them, that this is not going to be ideal. This is not going to be perfect. But um, they did super- superbly well and uh, helped out a hell of a lot through it all so then the journey became you know i'm away and this is where it really shocked me mike because last time i basically just in 2005 i hit major depression started on antidepressants for the first time eight days later bang suicide attempts icu then i wake up and actually turns out that um, barbiturates are really good for your brain if they don't kill you but (laughs) then um that, that I woke up feeling great no major depression so i just powered on and got my life back on track back then but this time it was coming out of the depths but still feeling that major depression thoughts keep coming back i had no idea it would take so long and be so hard to dig out of that because i could i just couldn't understand how i'd Same day, say three days in a row, one morning I wake up feeling okay, four out of 10. The next morning I'm back to one out of 10. You know, the next morning I'm up to six out of 10. I'm thinking, well, nothing's changed. Why is this? And it, it turns out it's just your brain gets really screwed up in its wiring, especially if you've been under, you know, chronic stress for a long time, your brain sort of gets almost addicted to the cortisol and adrenaline floating around and if you suddenly try and take that away it's saying well give me some <laughs> give me some back where's the stress so it almost makes its own dramas and that's um, sort of the the biochemistry of it all and so it's and then you you know get into the right of thinking, well, i'm here and i'm you know in the caravan with my beautiful fiance i'm here in nature why aren't i feeling good <laughs> so then yeah it, it goes again and but what I really learned was the big thing is that you've just got to be kind to yourself. And uh, that's something I think we as um, clinicians, you know, we the whole veterinary medical thing is all about critiquing papers and critiquing techniques and looking for the evidence and all that. If you start doing that to yourself, you can really go down a rabbit hole. So you've sort of just got to cut yourself some slack and think that, you know, I am okay and this is okay to be feeling crap and this is just how it is rather than asking questions. I want to get better now. I need to get better. I need to get back. I need to help. And I was feeling very guilty that i would left my team there and I was messaging them and saying, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? And they, they kept saying, just enjoy your holiday. <laughs> and I was saying, but I can't because I'm worried about, you know, we got this. We've got this big conference next year. And yeah, so... It, it became a juggling act but and I was lucky enough to also have a sort of a life coach as well who I was checking in with she was saying the same things as my psychiatrist said it's all about being kind to yourself and being patient and this will take time and uh, I also had some friend slash colleagues you know in their 60s 70s 80s and they most of them had been through this stuff as well it, it's very common it just never really got spoke about too much but they are all saying the same thing. It's just going to take time, going to take time. And I'm thinking, well, I can't afford time. And, you know, it was a very expensive operation. I think maybe it was a midlife crisis. I should have just went and bought a Harley for 50 grand and that would have been cheaper. But, yeah, so time was a big thing. But I also did other things exercise was massive you know I'd stopped exercising I was too busy to exercise I'd cut that out and that was the one thing like I I increased my psychiatrist increased my antidepressants that didn't do anything but the exercise was the big thing that I would get rise in my mood sort of from four to a seven after a 6k run that sort of thing and I just felt so much better and I was listening to to sort of Self talk, uh, the sort of book, What to Say to Your Brain When You're Talking to It. And that was very good. I'll get the name of that. It was by Sham Hempstead, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter, To Say When You Talk to Yourself. So that was another good book that was really useful, you know, and in line with what I was being told by my professionals about it is what it is and don't get too far ahead of yourself live in the moment so then i um got on to doing some mindfulness stuff on on youtube and they they were amazingly not only helpful but beautiful they're were, they were really like gifts to uh, myself where i just listen to them going to sleep or and they really do you know they made me feel so much better and it was in the past to shut my brain off i'd you know have two or three drinks um you know if i was overwhelmed so Whereas the mindfulness can can do that, it can make you feel much more relaxed and it's very easy and accessible on YouTube. So that was a, a biggie. The exercise, getting out there in nature. I did cut back on alcohol to basically zero because, um, and I didn't know this, that um, how alcohol When you drink it, you actually get endorphin release. So it gives you a high when you drink, and that's why you go for another one because you might want to feel better. But the next day, it it is a depressant. So alcohol went. Yeah, visiting family, caught up with some old school buddies on Facebook, that sort of thing, just touching. I read a book, my first book in 10 years, watched some movies. And the irony was the first movie that Carolyn got for us to watch in the caravan. One of the main characters killed himself <laughs> so it was a bad Oops. A, a bad choice of the movie, but we laughed about it and it was fine. yeah, so yeah, it was really just trying to do whatever whatever it would take, but I think the big ones were the exercise, healthy eating, cutting out the alcohol, and mindfulness meditation were the, the three most important, as well as um, you know professional health.
0: Okay, excellent. How about yourself, Kara?
2: Yeah, it's really nice to listen to you Oliver because obviously one of my big things was I I left. I left and I put myself in a better position. I had to get out of the toxic work environment. I had to find kind of my people, my community, people whose values and morals lined up a little bit more with mine. I realized I needed to be closer to family because that's really important to me. But you are still in the same position but had to pull yourself out and go back to doing the same thing. And Listening to you made me realize that, you know, right before I left my job, I think I was in this kind of weird dichotomy of probably my highest level of burnout in terms of being on my own, not being supported, again, feeling just overworked and uh, undervalued. But because I was in Florida operating alone, I was also able to start doing things that allowed me to combat that burnout. And that was starting to make a little bit more of a routine because for me, Florida just everything was so close together. It was easy for me to get up the extra 20 minutes early to do yoga or, you know, just get it in at some point during the day. My family was down there over the winter, unfortunately, because of another family member who was sick, but it meant that I got to see family like once a week, even if it was for 25 minutes. And that was a huge thing that helped, you know, again, keep me going and stop me from falling into this same kind of vicious cycle, whereas the previous Florida, I was on the kitchen floor crying. Like you were saying, you know, exercise. And uh, for me, again, being, I guess, surrounded by my people and being around my people allowed me to get away as well. I focused my time on actually spending time not just at the end of the night coming home and trying to sleep and not sleeping well for six hours, going to spend time with my horse you know putting him at a barn that was closer to where I was living which I know nothing in Wellington's that far away but sometimes it feels far away at the end of the day when it's on the other side of the showgrounds you know so putting him somewhere where I was seeing him putting him in, him in a barn where I had a community there that was outside of work where they're still in the equine world and I could go and I could talk about work if I needed to but I could get away from it and I could not just get away from it completely but I could get away into what I wanted to be doing, right? So in the equine world, still in the sports world, there's another veterinarian from another practice there kind of thing. And so it's this kind of eye-opening, getting away from that environment, but still being able to do what I want and be embraced by the type of places and culture and thing that I'm trying to achieve and realizing that that's there. So it was kind of a realization moment in addition to addressing my burnout And I think those things tied very closely hand in hand with me, which made me realize that, hey, I can still exist in this industry and I can still be the kind of veterinarian that I want to be, not the veterinarian that stops collaborating with people, not the veterinarian that has to pick their medications based only off of what's available on the shelf, not the veterinarian who has to get something approved by three tiers, you know, before you can even do something. I can do what I want to do and live this life because as i was doing these things to combat my own burnout i was essentially creating my next step in my career which then led me to you know what did i go do next and realizing that i needed to leave and i it was the environment that i was in which was creating this so my original thought was to go out on my own because i had started to create this world for myself where i could do all of these things and then while going through that and talking to a bunch of mentors and friends i realized that Being in a group practice, this specific group practice I'm in is a much better fit for me, but it allowed me to look at the pros and cons, which then further circled back to, wow, this is why I'm not happy. It's because I'm completely burned out by the bureaucracy and the quarterback, you know, armchair quarterbacking that's going on in different levels. And I'm starting to do that. And I hate doing that. You know, I'm not collaborating and working together. I'm starting to armchair quarterback to other people, you know, for my people that are up North while I'm down South. And that is just not the person I want to be. So, you know, I think doing all of those things made me realize how bad it was, but also allowed me to then come out of it on the other side that much stronger because it had this really nice twofold way of recognizing my signs of burnout by living through combating it while experiencing it all at the same time, kind of having to go through both at the same time very directly. So I think that was a big, yeah, I guess a big influencing moment for me. And then I also have a therapist and I'm on medications and obviously every medication is different for every person, which is my big plug. And if you feel like your medication's working and you're feeling better, that doesn't mean you just stop your medication. I just had a good friend who started taking meds for the first time to help herself after doing kind of all the traditional things. And she's very health and well-being oriented, very open. And she was like, you're doing great. So I'm going to stop these meds because like, I don't need them anymore. And then she like spiraled so hard in the opposite direction and learned that lesson the hard way, I think, as a lot of us do. So that's my quick plug for please consult your doctor prior to changing anything.
0: The one thing um, I'm getting between the two of you is that getting out of this, help really having a a network uh, and having professional, not just family and close people, but professional help. It it seems to me is essential. We could talk forever. And I'm sure people are like sitting on the edge of their seats as they're driving to calls, listening to this. I have one last question. It's more to, let's say the profession or to individuals in general is what do you recommend to the profession or to people for them to avoid what the two of you went through? We'll start with you, Oliver.
3: Yeah, it's interesting uh, listening to Kara, and I see you know this in a lot of brilliant young equine vets, and it's to me it's just tragic that someone with so much ability, energy, drive. You know, can get to this point, and it's, it's just awful. It's so wrong on every level, and I think uh, what what Kara realised, and this is I realised this twenty years ago, that when I decided to go on my own, I thought to myself, "Well, how much does the equine industry appreciate vets doing after hours?" And I thought actually very little. And I thought to myself, "If I go on my own and go twenty four seven, I mean, I." I I had this analogy of the better you get, the more people want to see you. And the more you open your doors, the more people will come in. And that that's the the essence of the destruction of good equine vets, is that the better you get, the more people want to see you, the more people you let in, you know, the busier. and, And then you start getting so busy that you start dropping balls and you take it hard on yourself. And that is the problem. So I think... It's, you know, if you want to be good, be aware that, that you're going to enter these um, these scenarios where, and I was lucky enough to meet Jack Eastley in Kentucky back in 2000, I think it was. And he said to me, um, if, you, if your best client's got a colic and your kid's got a ball game, go to the ball game. And, uh, you know, he'd been through the ringer in his career and his family life and that. But that was such good advice because it's about putting the the big rocks in your bucket first. And I hope there comes a day where the equine industry actually appreciates that how much of a luxury it is for after-hours emergencies to be run by a clinic. And I think that probably is going to come only through fewer and fewer vets actually doing it to a point where – you're a, an angel sent from heaven if you're going for an after hours call out for a horse in need. And it's a tragic situation that we've got to, but it is what it is. And unfortunately, it probably had to get there. So I would be recommending for vets that, you know, most of them are passionate about horses, equine vets, and uh, they want to get really good. But watch out for this and watch out for that scenario that the better you get, the more people are going to want your services. So watch out that you aren't giving more than your, what your body and your brain can handle and also watch out for it in in your colleagues as well because just getting familiar with it it's a bit like learning to to know about atrial fibrillation in a horse you know if you've never known about it before you you might not you'll miss it but if you know about it you know the warning signs you'll pick it up and and know how to hopefully get in before it gets really bad i do like the idea of having some sort of a coach Or or if you don't have a coach accountability buddy or a group that you're in, especially with our technology today, it's so much easier to do because a coach is different to a friend in that they won't, they'll call bullshit. You know, some friends will, but a coach will really, and my coach has been very much big on, you need to, you know, you've got too many plates spinning in in the air, you know, which ones are you going to cut back on? Some friends will do that, but a lot won't. A lot of friends will just support you no matter what you do sort of thing. And I think the big one overall is putting time into strategic planning of your next one, three, five years, no matter where you are in life, whether you're and I've been saying this to my boys, my three boys all along, you know, you need to – need to plan and look what are your goals even if you don't know them break it down into what feelings do you want to get out of your job you know because it's different for all of us some people you know like a lot of variety and excitement and they would be really good in uh, emergency practice and that sort of thing others want more certainty and um, you know want sort of more routine stuff and that make they want to do really good high detailed work on that and so they'll be more suited to something like dentistry or uh, where they can really get you know Particular and make sure everything's Mickey Mouse and much more in their control and that sort of thing. So I think it's being aware, planning, utilizing professional services. Um, you know, all the top athletes, they all have coaches. If you want to be top in life, you really need some sort of a coach.
0: Kara, last words yours.
2: Yeah. So, all just such good points and all very valid. There's a few other things I'll add. One is, um, especially for the younger people coming up, is there is a perception, especially in the equine industry, as opposed to small animal and other uh, veterinary facets, that is this like, beca- I mean, think it's because it's so hard to build relationships with equine clients and maybe other large animal practices too. I'd rope them into this, that you go to a practice and you, you die on the field, and we're trained in high school and college and veterinary school. The goal is to do this, to do this, to, you just want to get in, uh, you know, you just want to get into the college so that you can just get into the vet school. So you can just get into the internship program or just get into the residency program. So you come out you get this job and you're like, okay, I'm doing it. Now I'm going to die on this field. And this is going to be me. We have to be more flexible with ourselves and recognize that when we are in a bad situation, if things aren't feeling right, if you're not acting like yourself, if you feel like you're making compromises, it doesn't mean you have to A, leave the world, B, leave the veterinary profession, C, leave equine medicine, because I'm going to put a plug in for that. Like you can go to another place in equine medicine and still be happy. It's not one size fits all in equine medicine. I think people think that's, you know, back to your point, Oliver, that you you have to be a yes man and then when you're a yes man you get enough people and then you keep working and you keep working and you keep working until you just can't do it anymore and then you're 80 years old and you've missed your life. And that's not how it is everywhere. And so that goes to my next point which is when you're looking for a job or you're looking for a new job or you're realizing that you want to prioritize a family or you want to prioritize a different specialty so that's going to make you move to a different area or whatever, make sure you know what your own core values are and what makes you tick. And that goes also a little bit with hand in hand of having a professional relationship with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a coach, because that person's going to help you suss out a better relationship with yourself so that you can say, okay, I'm not going to do well if I'm missing family events, or I'm not going to do well, you know, brushing off microaggressions, or I'm not going to do well in the most supportive team ever if we have no technical staff, or If, you know, my clients are amazing and I'm doing exactly the type of medicine I want to do, but it is so toxic to talk to the other doctors and I can't collaborate, right? That's going to, knowing those things is going to help you prevent burnout because those are the things in the workplace that you have to go and deal with much more time than when you're away from the workplace. I mean, all of us are interacting at work much more than we are outside of work. Or we have work friends, we have work colleagues, you know, you're, you're with your clients who are part of your work after hours, right? You know, you've got to be happy in that workplace. And, you know, with that, you should go into a practice and say, what are your core values? And if they can't immediately rattle off four things, first of all, it's not the right place because they don't know what their values are. So how could they ever support you? And then you can kind of figure out, most of us have a pretty good read. Is Are they saying these things because they, they sound nice? Or are they saying these things because they're actually real? Like you already said, you know, educating yourself. Uh, on the signs of burnout, knowing what will trigger you and also knowing what, again, those those must-haves in your life are. You know, do you have student debt that you need to pay off? Do you really, does it make a huge difference in your life to have a technician with you every day? Does it make a huge difference in your life to feel like you're coming back to the clinic at the end of the day to be with friends and colleagues, people who you can ask, hey, what's a good restaurant for me to, you know, take my in-laws to? But you can also ask about a radiograph? Or do you want a separate lifestyle? And, you know, I think that mismatch for me was huge. And now being in the community that I'm in, I'm able to realize that. So again, I just think, you know, making a pros cons list also any day of the week, you know, you can make a pros cons for what does my ideal thing look like? If I were to leave my job tomorrow and start over, what's my pros cons list? And then you can go back to that and say, okay, what am I actually getting here? And what am I not getting, or what would I not get if I left this place? And you may be perfectly happy, but it's a good exercise to kind of do. And then don't be afraid if you have some things in that pros list of you leaving to go and ask for them, right? Can we get more equipment? Can we talk to the one person who's talking back to the doctors, you know, who's a support staff member in an inappropriate way? Can we improve our client relations? You know, can we streamline a process for that because it's going to make it easier? And then make sure you follow up on it too, right? Because it's not just having someone listen to those things, it's having someone then follow through with those things. So you've got to be bold and stand up for yourself a little bit in recognizing what are the things that, you know, would be good if I wasn't here and that I would, or I would redesign and, and try asking for them. And then if you don't get them, that's going to help you make your decision, right? So I think those are, you know, knowing yourself, reevaluating annually or whatnot, you know, what needs to be changed or improved and if it can be, or if it's a systemic failure, you know, making sure you have the appropriate support network. And I think, you know, knowing how to address this, and I know Mike's going to link something in the show notes here, but, you know, just educating yourself a little bit on burnout and taking some time to, to really process that, check back in with it quarterly, you know, are these things happening in my life? If they are is it something that I can fix?
0: Wow. Wow. I just can't thank you both enough for sharing your stories. I know people are going to be listening to this and you are going to help people. You're going to make people realize where they are. And so what a gift that you're able to share from your own story. So thank you both very, very much.
2: Thanks for having us.
3: Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Much appreciated.
0: And lastly, thank you again to Beringer Engelheim for giving us this platform to share these kind of stories that will help the profession. Thank you. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.
1: Beringer Engelheim Equine Health understands the incredible relationship that exists between horses and humans. And when it comes to managing the horse's health, there are actually two patients, the horse and the owner. That's why we create science that helps strengthen and prolong that bond. To learn more about Beringer Ingelheim's approach to equine treatments and solutions, visit bi-animalhealth.com equine.